Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1, and we're focusing on the women who are in those uh, in that genealogy because Matthew only lists four out of 41 different marriages. And so there's a reason that he introduces all four of these, and we've already looked and said, you know, they're all Gentiles. They all have this odd sort of sexual past that kind of hangs over them and, and makes them people who you would think would be sort of unacceptable to be in the line of Messiah. But, but I believe Matthew has an agenda here. I believe Matthew's agenda is pretty clear. He's writing to the early Christian community that would have been comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, and, and in order to, to sort of harmonize those two factions, potential factions at least, and in some cases we know that, that there were factions and divisions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The, the Jewish Christians in many cases wanted the Gentile Christians to, for instance, be circumcised in order to come in as converts. Here it's the other way around. He's saying these people, these women in particular, are the ones who who bring the line. And so if a Gentile would then be in the line of these women. And so they come into the covenant as their children, they are Jewish because the father's Jewish in these instances. And so they become part of the nation of Israel and part of the line of Messiah. And so he's telling us about these women, and so we want to look at them. We want to understand something about who they are. Well, they're not just Gentiles who have a sort of questionable sexual past. They're more than that. They're righteous women. That's the important thing. They bring a righteousness and a knowledge of Jewish righteousness, in other words, godly righteousness, into the line, that they are blended in through this righteousness. And, and that's why I believe Matthew includes them in his genealogy. And so where are we? We looked at yesterday at who is this Judah, who is the husband of Tamar, by whom she has these two children. And so we brought that up through chapter 37 of Genesis, through the sale of Joseph, and then immediately followed by the story of Judah and Tamar. And so what we've learned already is, is that, that Judah has gone down to Canaan. And when, it's, when Scripture says going down, it means two things. It can mean physical descent, but we're told that Samson goes up to the place that Judah goes down to. So he, this going down also is spiritual descent, the way that it's used here, and then also we're going to see it in, in the story of Ruth. We're going to see the going down of Jewish people, and where do they go down to? They go up to Jerusalem, but where do they go down to? They go down to Gentile lands. In other words, they've shirked their responsibility at some level for their own people in doing what they've done in leaving the land. They have gone down, essentially, is the way that it's described. And so he has gone down. He has married a Canaanite woman, had three boys by her, given two of those boys to this Canaanite woman, Tamar. The first one died because he was wicked. They didn't have any children, so he said, okay, in order to fulfill our law of leveret marriage, we need now you, the secondborn, Onan, go in to her. He refused to do it. He was wicked. 
because he refused to do the legal thing, and therefore the Lord took him. And then Judah's concerned now about giving his youngest son to her because of what's happened to the first two. So then what's happened is his wife, Judah's wife, died. He was comforted. His time of mourning had ended. And then he goes up to Timnah, which is where Samson finds a wife. So he goes up to Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, Tamar being the the, uh, the widowed um, woman who had married, had been with two of, of Judah's children, when she was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, which she's obliged to wear, and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. So in other words, she's obscured her face and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah, the youngest son, was grown up, the one who had been promised to her. He was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with Judaism. Remember that. We're in Canaan. We're not with the people. There, there is no temple. There's no cult prostitute anywhere else. And we're going to find out that what he thought was she's a cult prostitute. We're going to find that out a little later. So he, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. It would have been what they would have done. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. Well, this is not good. This is not within the law. He is a, a, a widowed man, and his time for mourning is over. But he's, he's still sleeping with a prostitute, is, is, is what he wants to do here. <clears throat> and she said, he said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So we've got more deception. What is wrong with these people? I mean, it's just constant again and again and again. Abraham deceives two different people by saying to Sarah, hey, tell her, tell them you're my sister. That way they won't kill me to get you. And then his son Isaac does the same with his wife, Rebecca. And then what a surprise, their sons deceive. And then what a surprise when Jacob goes to be with his mother's family to find a wife, her brother deceives him. And then his wife deceives her father and, and, and on and on and on it goes. And so we've got that deception we talked about yesterday where Judah and his brothers deceived their father Jacob, who had deceived his father in order to get the blessing. Then they, they deceive him over the death, supposed, of Joseph. And so now we've got more deception. She's deceiving Judah in order that he'll do what she needs in order to, ha- to not be childless. Because as a widow and a childless widow at that, she is incredibly uh, economically vulnerable. She has no one to provide for and no inheritance. So <clears throat> she says, what will you give me that you may come into me? In other words, I don't do this for free. He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. Remember, he's going up to his shearers, and she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. In other words, I'm not doing this on credit. No, you got to give me something that I can rely upon so that I can collect on the promise that you've made. She says, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that's in your hand. So your ring, the cord around your waist, and your staff that's in your hand. So she gave them, he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put back on the garments of her widowhood. 
She's still a widow in that she is promised to another. She's not free with respect to Shelah, but Judah has kept him from her. So we have these problems in there in that, that now she is kept from being able to move forward in her life and being able to provide for herself by finding another mate because she's promised to another. So she takes matters into her own hands, tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and gets pregnant by him. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, Hira the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. Why did he send his friend Hira to do this? Why didn't he go do it himself? Was he embarrassed? What's the deal? So, and, and he asked the men of the place, he, Hira, asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. We don't know what you're talking about. This is the same kind of deception that Judah and his brothers played on the father. We got a missing person. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and he didn't find her. He says, let her, he says, let her keep the stuff, because now we look like fools, asking about a cult prostitute. Well, I, I'm positive there was one. I'm positive I didn't dream all this, because, well, I don't have my signet quarter staff. So I, I don't know what happened here, but let her keep it. Because I, I don't, I don't want to go on that witch hunt. So about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. So not only has she committed an immoral act, which you would expect of a Canaanite if you were an Israelite, but not only has she committed this immoral act, she's also guilty of a, uh, she's, she's not just guilty of adultery, she's pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned which would have been the appropriate punishment. Now, from here, this story reminds me of a gospel story, and it's the gospel story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery. And they're ready to come bring her out and stone her to death because she's been caught in adultery. And then Jesus bends over and he writes something in the dirt. And when he does, they all go away. They're no longer willing to condemn her for this thing. And here we're going to see a very similar kind of thing that happens. So he says, bring her out, let her be burned. That's the punishment for adultery. And she has committed adultery because she's promised to Shayla. Now, he's kept Shayla from her. So we got a problem. But Judah is ready to put her on trial. He's ready to have this trial right now. And he's already pronounced the verdict. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. You know, think back to chapter 20, 37 and what happens. Once they, they don't, once they can't, Reuben at least can't identify where in the world Jacob or Joseph might be. And so they phony up this thing by taking the, the coat of many colors they had taken from him. They put some goat's blood on it and they take it to the father and say, do you know who this belongs to? And he says, oh my gosh, it's Jacob's and or Joseph's. And clearly from looking at this with the blood on it, he was attacked by a wild beast and probably torn into pieces and he's gone forever. So that was their ploy to, to get him to come to his own conclusion. Here, she does something really interesting. She sends the three things, the three pledges that he had given to her and says, can you identify who these are? 
In other words, what she's saying is, is that, that the guy who owns this stuff, he's the one responsible because there's not just one person involved in this. There's two people involved. So she sends him out, and then Judah identified him and said, she's more righteous than I since I didn't give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. It, it's a fascinating way of doing this. She could have just named him, but no, she leaves it to Judah to do the right thing. She leaves it to her father-in-law to confess his own sin. She could have exposed him. She could have made a, a, a big, big deal out of this. She could have done multiple things, right? She could have accused him of, of, of being a violator of the law by failing to give his son as he had promised and forcing her to become this vulnerable, childless widow. She could have done that. She could have, have brought forth a case at law against Judah, but she did not. She waited until he came to make a case against her, and she didn't come out and plead. She did it in the quietest possible way. She sent these things out and said, can you identify who these are? And he answers, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he didn't know her again. So Judah didn't continue to sleep with her, didn't take her as his wife. He had provided the sons necessary, because when the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and said, she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, and afterwards his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So the, the fascinating thing here is this the way that she acts and then Judah's reaction. It's very similar to what Judah does with, with respect to his brother. He, he realizes this is not going to be a good thing, and so he proposes a different kind of solution about how to deal with Joseph. Let's make some money out of this deal. Let's get something. Let's not kill him. Let's not do the worst possible thing. And now here he is. He's ready to kill his daughter-in-law. And then he's confronted with his own sin. And what was that sin? He failed to give his son to her as he had promised that he would do. So he is a violator of the law, and she, he says, she's more righteous than I am because I failed to do this. She took matters into her own hand, and she did what was supposed to be done. Somebody from that family was intended to, to provide a child for her. It should not have been Judah, but because he failed to do what he did, he put her in this incredibly vulnerable position. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that also, about this whole idea of this odd pregnancy, and now suddenly there's, there's the, somebody has to be confronted in order to not do what they're going to do, and, and it's done quietly. It's exactly what happens with Mary. It's exactly what happens with Mary. Mary uh, is... Uh, impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon her with God's child, and what happens next? Joseph decides he's going to put her away quietly. There's two different ways that he could have done it. He could have done it in a very public way by taking her out and saying, this woman has committed sexual immorality and an adultery because she was engaged to me, and she clearly slept with somebody else, and how do I know that? Well, she's pregnant, and I know because of her pregnancy, that, and I haven't slept with her. So it must have been somebody else. And he could have done that very publicly, but he chose to do it privately. And in that case, what it would have looked like would have been they would have just gotten divorced, and he would kind of have looked like the bad guy for abandoning her. And so Joseph was willing to do that. But 
Then an angel appeared to him and told him not to do that. And so there's a scandal of Jesus' birth. I mean, we know and we believe as Christians that he was certainly born of a virgin, that it happened exactly the way Scripture tells us that it did. But at the time, there were a great many rumors about what had actually happened because nobody believed in virgin births. And I've said this a million times, the first two people we know didn't believe in virgin births were Mary, because she says, how can such things be, seeing that I'm a virgin? And then God explains it to her by saying, you're going to be overshadowed by the power from the Most High. If that's an explanation, I mean, you know, the answer would be, I have no earthly idea what that looks like. I don't, that doesn't make any sense at all. But it does to God, and therefore it made sense to Mary. And so Mary agreed to it, and the second person we know didn't believe in it was Joseph, and how do we know that? Well, because he came to the same conclusion that Judah did. Somebody did this. There's been sex had somewhere. I don't know who did it, but I know she did. And and so here, she does this very quiet thing and says, "Just I'll send these out to my father-in-law and say, do you know who these belong to? And so then he has to acknowledge she's in the right. And so there's this very quiet way of confronting a truth. It was the path that Joseph had more or less taken. And she's willing, I believe, here. She, uh, Tamar, is willing to allow her father-in-law to lie and deny. And that's going to be hard because he, he sent Hira. So we already know that, that he thinks he slept with a, a, a prostitute. And he is sending the, uh, the goat in order that he can get back the pledge that he gave. So Hira at least knows of this thing. And when Hira goes and checks in with everybody locally and asks about this cult prostitute, they all know there's something up. And so here we are. And we're confronted with this thing. So you get this Tamar, who as a Canaanite would have, would have been suspected of this kind of adultery because of her ancestry, who then does the right thing and gives the father-in-law, Judah, the opportunity to do the right thing by her when he has already not done the right thing by her. And so we've seen two wicked men in the line of Judah who have gone to untimely deaths because of their wickedness, and then he's failed to give her this youngest child in order to carry on the name of the brother and to provide for this childless widow. And now we see that this woman this Canaanite woman is considered to be more righteous than the man whose tribe will become the line of kings and the line of messiahs. And so she brings a righteousness back in and restores righteousness to the line of Judah, even though she's a Canaanite woman and even though what she did might have been scandalous. Live with the scandal learn through the scandal, and recognize something else is at work and God's at work in the same way that he was in Mary conceiving a child and the scandal that Joseph had to live with and that the others had to live with as well in the early church when the rumors that Mary had slept with a Roman soldier or whatever came out because nobody believed in a virgin birth. So it couldn't have happened that way. But it did.